Welcome back to another episode of the Fab Lab Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Crowley. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow fabricators, stone shop owners from across the Fruited Plain and beyond, I'm so glad to be tuning in with you again on this episode, episode 117, How I Sold My Stone Shop. Now, if you listen to the last episode, you'll know that I did sell my stone shop. So if you're listening to this, maybe that's a shock, maybe that's a surprise after 116 episodes talking about the business side of stone fabricating. Most of that time from the perspective of a fellow stone shop owner. Well, now I'm no longer an owner. And in this episode, I want to tell you how I made that transition. Now, this is not intended to be a how-to, you know, how to sell your stone shop in three easy steps. Because for one thing, it wasn't easy. (laughs) It was unique. And I think it was really cool. uh, But it wasn't easy. And that's not the purpose of this episode. Simply... Put, I want to share my unique experience. I think that the sale of my company was a little unusual, maybe not completely abnormal or out of the norm, but but definitely unusual in the sense that I did not follow the traditional path of either selling it to an employee, selling it to a competitor, or hiring a broker who put it on the market and ultimately sold it to an outsider. Uh, it was it was unique, and but very cool. And so in this episode, I'm going to share that with you with the goal, with the hope of providing you an insight, a window into what it is like to sell a business. That was something I didn't have. I cannot recall ever talking to an owner who had sold their own company, much less a stone shop. And so I kind of entered this process. Uh, events basically took off and uh, I just held on and, and you know, six months later, we closed. We walked out of the title company with the escrow agent. Uh, didn't have a check in her hand quite yet. That took a couple of days, but we walked out of there having signed the contract, shook hands with the new owner in the parking lot, and uh, wow, <laughs> after 23 years, I no longer owned a stone shop. And so in this episode, uh, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to walk you through that journey, how it started, kind of how it unfolded, some things that I learned, and then really the the mechanics of the transaction, and it was almost six months to the day from the point where we received the letter of intent until the day we walked out of the title company with um, that contract having been signed and it and it being done. And uh, I think it was the next day that the check actually was released from escrow and uh, we went to the bank and deposited that. But I'm going to tell you, I think the, the finer points that would be useful to know, just understand and have, a like I said, a window of insight into how that process works. And so really for me, there's there's no hear me when i say this there is no suggestion i'm not implying subtly the fact that i'm sharing this with you as i relaunched the fab lab podcast yet again um is not to suggest that anybody else should be thinking about selling their stone shop it is not to imply that that is a good idea it is it it, it that's an individual choice i simply want to share this for the perspective of anybody who finds themselves in that situation this will be a benefit and a resource and a a relevant insight that uh, will allow you to maybe make some decisions in the meantime that would favorably impact you know the sale of your company should that arise and so i think really when i look back um, despite the motivations behind, you know, the, the calculation, if you will, concluding that, you know, I really think I need to sell my company in lieu of all these other opportunities and all these other desires that I had, you know, a la the last episode, episode 116, I sold my stone shop and why. 
I think the, the, the point at which the sale really began, if I could trace it back to a date in time, it really was September of 2019. I attended an ISFA event, the International Surface Fabricators Association, a group, of, great group of solid surface and stone fabrication companies. They held a roundtable in Portland, in the Portland area in September of 2019 at one of my competitor's shops. And so I visited that, took a tour, and then they had brought in a business broker from a firm up in Seattle. And the guy gave a great presentation on what it, you know, what it entails to sell a business. And um, they passed out bottle openers with this company's logo on it. And so later... I think it was probably February of 2020, right before COVID hit, I I thought, you know, um, one of the things that really struck me from this individual's uh, presentation was that um, he talks to a lot of business owners who want to sell their companies, and very, very common, very, very likely that um, the business owner has an... uh, uh, kind of a fantasy number in his mind. Most business owners think their business or their company is worth a lot more than it actually is worth in terms of fair market value. And so he talked about the importance of having evaluation done for a couple of reasons. Number one, you can operate out of reality. You may not be ready to sell your business. If it's worth a lot less than you think, you may think the time is now, but the time may not be. The other thing is that by getting that valuation done, it allows you to begin to make adjustments in the business um, to get it to a valuation that might work for you if that is your decision. And so I was thinking about that and thought, you know, I got nothing to lose. I'm beginning to sort of think in those terms that it may be worth considering the sale of the company. Again, this is early 2020. And so uh, I contacted this firm up in Seattle. They drove down a couple of, I think, the owner of the firm and uh and one of his associates came down and we had a very lengthy conversation and we entered into this agreement and began this extremely lengthy and I would say invasive process <laughs> of having to provide them um, with basically pulling back the curtain. There was nothing withheld from this company, the tax returns, the financial statements, the debt, you know, the uh, everything was uh, transparently provided to this company so that they could make a fair market valuation of our stone shop after at that point it had been about 22 years since we've been in business. And it was really interesting. I learned a lot from that process. You know, you've got interested parties. You've got the broker who is going to, um, in many cases, do the valuation. But they're only one of the parties. Then you've got the bank. And what do I mean by the bank? Well, the lender, most buyers of businesses do not come with cash. They don't buy those, you know, uh, without a lender. And so you've got a bank involved. And then you've got the buyer themselves. So you've got three different you know, players, if you will, that are ultimately going to determine what the end valuation of the company is. You've got the broker who assesses it. What's the market value based on certain equations and certain, certain multipliers. Then you've got the bank that's assessing the business's record of generating cash. The banks want, you know, the bank wants to know, can this business generate enough income to not only pay the new owner uh, uh, you know, a fair wage, but to also pay back the loan because that's where they make their money. They get the interest on the loan and they've got to make sure that there is enough um, excess income generated by the practices of the business to to do both, pay the new owner and pay the bank off. And then you got the buyer themselves and the buyer comes at it from a completely different angle. The buyer's got all kinds of emotional attachments, goals, dreams, and perspectives, and they may value things within the business differently than the broker does and differently than what the banker does. And so the synthesis of those 
three entities, the buyer, the bank, and the broker, ultimately come to some sort of blended value of the business. And so I had the broker do that for me. And they, of course, have sold a ton of businesses. And so they kind of know what buyers are looking for. They know what banks require. And they provided me with this extremely thorough and extensive and exhaustive valuation on our company. And the goal was, you know, to eventually list the business with them. But I'll be honest with you, the valuation wasn't a shock. I didn't have a pie-in-the-sky fantasy idea in terms of what the business was worth. I mean, I had a, I had a, uh, some hopes in terms of what I, I hoped it was worth. But when I did get the valuation, um, I wasn't shocked. Let's just put it that way. It was lower than I'd hoped. I'll be completely honest with you. It was lower than I hoped. But um, it, was in the, it was within the realm of, of possibility that I could sell the business for that amount and and move on to my next venture with uh and, and it would work for me i was like yeah the trade-off um could i have retired based on the sale of the company no not for more than a couple of years <laughs> then i would have been back to work for sure and but my goal wasn't to retire anyway it was to move into something else and i was looking for my motivation was to buy me time it was to it was to clear my schedule so that i could focus more specifically on a couple of pursuits and so um that valuation seemed Within the realm of um, possibility for 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 what we needed to do to get you know to exit the business and move into my next venture, and so that's where we started. But when I got the valuation, my my next step was not to immediately sign with the broker and actually list the business. What what I had learned, you know, over the process, of course, you had COVID going on, and it was just a really chaotic time in the summer of 2020, and so we really thought. My wife and I was like, well, it's, the valuation isn't so great that it's like, yeah, let's do this right now. It was like, well, we could probably do some things over time, you know, the next you know, six months, maybe a year, make some improvements to the business that would, you know, increase the value of the company if we did decide to sell it in, you know, maybe 2021. And so it, it wasn't super high in the priority list, but having that valuation done in retrospect, looking back in hindsight, was a very significant, very important, and very, very, very helpful step to have taken when we did, even though I wasn't necessarily ready to put the business on the market right away. Which leads me to sort of the next step. Once you have a valuation, and, and having the valuation first, I think, is ideal as opposed to being in a situation where you find yourself with a buyer and then going, oh, well, now I've got to get a valuation done. That can take months. It literally can take months to have a thorough, formal evaluation done on a business. And so to have that done first kind of set the stage for the next stage of this process. And so what would I was learning as we were kind of thinking about this, we had the valuation. My business coach was like, well, ideally, you know, if you decide to do this, best case scenario is you sell this to an employee. It's the least disruption to the staff, least disruption to the business itself. Banks like to loan money to employees of companies because they're more familiar. There's a more uh, you know, higher likelihood of continuity. You have less disruption. And so the bank feels that that's a safer bet. It's less risky when you've got someone who's maybe been a manager at the company. So we assessed that. In the process of kind of thinking through that, I actually dipped my toe in the water of, of talking to some competitors. That's like the next best strategy for selling a company is finding someone who wants to make a strategic acquisition, somebody who's already in the industry or maybe even a related industry who recognizes the value, the business that you're putting up for sale in theory fits nicely with their overall objectives and it can be a way for them to acquire revenue, to expand their business without having to start from scratch. And so I did, I, I reached out to a couple of companies, the owners of a couple of companies in the Northwest that I trusted, um, that I had relationships with much larger companies thinking that that might lend itself to a higher price. Um, but neither of the companies that I talked to 
uh, were interested in the end. Both of them considered it. Both of them got back and said, you know, it's just not a good fit. And, um, and, I, and I am glad to say that to those companies' credit, despite, you know, taking a risk and telling a competitor, hey, I'm thinking about selling my company. And I told them why. Well, told both of them the exact same thing I mentioned in the last episode, why I was thinking about selling. It wasn't to escape. It wasn't to run away. It wasn't to retire. It was, I just had other things I wanted to focus on. And it seemed like, you know, a strategic acquisition might be worthwhile, especially if they were a company of good repute and that they could continue the business and hopefully make a place for my staff. Um, But neither of these two companies were interested in the end. And so, uh, at that stage, I did end up going and talking to one of my employees after evaluating our staff. There was one individual who I thought might be willing to consider that. And so, I, again, very quietly, very tactfully, very carefully, very um, w- with great care and caution, I brought this to his attention and said, I'm thinking about selling the company in the event that I do conclude that I want to sell it. Would you be interested in perhaps having that conversation, what that might look like. And this individual began the process talking with his family uh, about, you know, whether or not that was something that they wanted to pursue. And um, and while that was going on, I'll, I'll, I'll just say right here, the other option, you typically see three distinct channels or avenues towards the sale of a company. I mentioned one, selling it to an employee or employees oftentimes happens, selling it to a competitor, probably the second most common. And then the third, which would seem to be the most obvious, would be to, to actually list the business with a broker who would then go out and with their network of buyers that are looking to acquire businesses, they would present that business and, and hopefully sell it. One of the things I've learned since then is that about 80% of the companies that are listed don't actually sell. I did not know that at the time. And that um, it's kind of a shocking stat. I also learned something else that 80% of owners who sell their companies regret having sold out within one year of you know completing the transaction. And so the broker, the broker was sort of my last resort. And, and again, I hadn't really gone out of my way. I talked to one employee. I talked to a couple of competitors very quietly. But beyond that, I hadn't done anything really official or really aggressive to put the business up for sale in the traditional sense. So meanwhile, while this is all going on, while my employee is thinking about this, um, I have a, a very interesting development. Let's just call it that. And so backing up again to would have been fall of 2020 at this point. So it had the valuation, COVID's happening. It's, it's, it's summer of 2020 rather. And I am contacted by somebody who had bought my book and who listened to the podcast. This individual was a local um, businessman who was in the process of buying one of my competitors. Another competitor turned out was up for sale, and this individual was in the process of basically in the middle of the transaction, hoping to to to, to complete the sale and, and to acquire this stone fabrication company. He contacted me after reading my book and said, "Hey, I'd like to talk to you, talk about a coaching relationship." And so we talked through that, and and in the end, this individual told me that they were going to go ahead and wait until the election. Again, this was you know summer of twenty twenty. And so we kind of lost track. I didn't pursue that. I was really busy. So then you fast forward, February 17th. I can still remember the date to this day. One of my employees is considering this. A couple of competitors have passed. And this individual crosses my mind. And I thought, well, that's intriguing. I haven't heard anything. I never heard whether or not he bought my competitor or not. I might as well send him an email and find out what's going on. So I sent him an email that night, February 17th. Hey, hadn't heard. Curious what you decided to do. Did you end up buying such and such stone company? Well, he emails me back the next morning. No, I didn't. It fell through. Didn't work out. 
I said, wow, that's very interesting. Well, I am considering some options, and I'm wondering if you'd be interested in talking about an opportunity. Sent that back on the Thursday. If so, let me know, and I'll give you a call. We can chat about it. She's like, yes, absolutely. Give me a call. So the next morning, Friday, February 19th, I call this individual. I'll never forget. <laughs> I was driving into the parking lot of our stone shop having this conversation, and I said, hey, um, I'm thinking about selling my stone shop. I got this other company. I got the podcast. I'm thinking I want to work from home. And I think it's time I start really seriously considering selling the company. Would you be interested? Now, I knew he was interested in buying a stone company because he'd been in the process of buying one and it hadn't worked out. And he said, absolutely. I would love to talk to you about that. So we set a date for February 22nd, three o'clock. It was a Monday. He comes to the shop, takes a tour, and we sit down in my office and we proceed to have this conversation about what it's like to run a stone shop. And it turned out he had family that owned a company in another state, another stone shop that he'd worked in. He'd also worked in a stone shop here locally. And in the meantime, he had started a very successful business in another field. And um, But he was of the mind to acquire a stone shop. He It was his dream to actually buy and run a countertop shop just like mine. And so we had the tour. Just so happened that I had that valuation in the desk. And so as we got to talking about what it would look like, I said, hey, I'll just give this to you. you know, there was no... I don't believe we had a, a, a non-disclosure agreement. It was all in a handshake. Handed them the valuation. I mean, this is like the inner workings of the company <laughs> to the nth degree. And this valuation basically was based on a couple of things. It was based on all our tax returns that validated our financial statements that demonstrated the income that was there to support you know, the valuation and the loan that could be paid back after paying the, the new owner a salary. So I handed that off to him. It was February 22nd. That night, to my utter shock and amazement, totally unexpected, totally out of the blue from my perspective, I received an email from this individual with a formal letter of intent to buy the company. He had offered me the, the, the direct average of the two, you know, basically the low and the high. There was an offer from somebody to a, a formal official letter of intent to purchase our company right there, and I, I couldn't believe it. And so when I said back on the, the a couple of podcasts ago that February 22nd, 2022 was the one-year anniversary from when everything changed in my stone company, that's what it was. February 22nd, 2021, to my utter amazement, I got a formal letter of intent to purchase my company. Now, fast forward six months later, it worked out. We began that process, and it just unfolded. I'm going to share that with you next, talking about how that process actually worked, what is involved in the sale of a company. It begins with the letter of intent, <laughs> which essentially buys the buyer 30 days of, I guess, a grace period, if you will. You commit, you agree not to enter into negotiations, not to talk to any other buyers. You basically say, hey, because of the extraordinary investment of time and money that you as a buyer are going to make doing your due diligence to see if it's worth taking the next step, I agree not to enter into any other conversations, any other agreements, or any other negotiations so that you in good faith can make a good faith you know, uh, investigation of the company. And so it's funny, the process kind of begins all over again, all of that information that had to be provided to the, the broker to do the valuation, it's like starting over from scratch. You cannot imagine the sheer volume of, of documentation, financial, tax records, bank records, 
um, you basically are completely exposed. There is nothing hidden from the buyer during this due diligence period, and you have to turn everything over because they've got to work with their team to evaluate, is this information correct? Is there anything suspect? Um, does this look like a good investment? And so after that 30 days, the, the letter of intent period also initiated sort of the second stage. So in the interim, I've got this letter of intent. We've got this you know, date at which the letter of intent expires. And in the meantime, they do their due diligence. And in the meantime, I come up as the buyer, as the seller with a purchase agreement. So because I didn't have a broker representing me, I went to my attorney who turned me over to his partner who specialized in selling businesses or advising on business sales. I think he'd sold over a thousand, he'd been involved in over a thousand business sales. And, um, and I thought that, you know, the way that this unfolded, my perception, my expectation was like, man, this is, you know, February 22nd, so we got a 30-day letter of intent, so it's going to be, you know, the end of March, that's going to happen. I'm thinking, we're going to be out of this thing by the end of April. And I was just a little bit uh, <laughs> too optimistic. It actually ended up being August 19th, but... I really expected the process just to be boom, boom, boom. And what it turns out is that selling a company um, is an extraordinarily complicated, lengthy process to do it right, to do it well, to reduce as many unforeseen surprises for the buyer as is possible. It requires an enormous amount of work, an extraordinary investment in time, effort, and money. I paid my attorney probably the equivalent of what I would have paid a broker um, to have gone out and, and, and found a buyer. And in a lot of ways, the broker would have provided the same level of advice and you know walking us through a purchase agreement and how to negotiate that. But there were some things I, I cannot overstate the extraordinary wisdom and value of having this attorney because he he was able to speak to two very, very, very critical, one of these critical aspects was unique to stone fabrication and manufacturing. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this it, it's kind of in the weeds. It's kind of a nerdy topic, but it is, in retrospect, looking back after the fact, I can see now the wisdom. And, and I was getting really frustrated. I was like, this isn't that complicated. Can we please just get this purchase agreement written so we can get on to the next step? I don't want anything to delay this sale now that the process has begun in my mind. You know, it's it's um, emotionally. I had already moved past the point where we'd sold the company. I'm already on to the next thing, and now it's just a formality that I got to get it sold. And and so I'm going to talk about two of those things. The first was the uh, basically the contracts not started, and and this was something that all the work actually occurred in the days leading up to closing when we actually went to the title company with the escrow agent, and and all of that legality was performed to make sure that those transactions and all the debts were resolved. Um, and all the money exchanged hands to, per the contract. But this, so this is like early March, turned out to be, you know, five months prior to the actual closing date. And, and he is meticulously demanding of me with, with extreme detail two clauses in this purchase agreement re- related to the contracts that we had that we hadn't started and the work that we would have on the day of closing, what was called work in process, WIP. And the way that that was valued, I did not understand. I didn't appreciate, number one, how many contracts we would have, you know, legal. So those contracts, when you have a contract with the customer, whether you've started it or not, that is a binding agreement. 
And th- those have to be transferred in a legal, formal, official way. And so one of the things we had to do immediately was change the wording in our contracts to reflect that this agreement, and we didn't, you know, of course, I'd had salespeople that were selling jobs and didn't know that I was in the process of selling the company. So I went to my estimator, we changed the templates on our quotes, and just to include some different language that in the end would let the buyer or would let the buyer of the cust- of the countertops, the, the countertop customer who we have a contract with, um, basically that legal latitude for us to transition. Hey, yeah, you signed that contract with my company, but the company's been sold. And so now you have that contract with the new owner of the company. And so it went two ways. Number one, we had to make sure that the the countertop customer was was legally covered in that. But we also had to make sure that the new owner of the company understood their obligation to fulfill those contracts. It wasn't just that you know I could enter into contracts in good faith. I couldn't enter into contracts in good faith with my customers. I needed them to continue the business, but I couldn't knowingly do that and not know whether or not the new owner was going to step in and fulfill them, even though those contracts in most cases had not been started. And so even in, in explaining this, it, it's complicated, and it illustrates the wisdom and the necessity to have this explicitly written out. And we worked on this language. It probably cost me <laughs> a couple of thousand dollars in consulting because of how much time we spent crafting the language in this clause to be unbelievably precise and exact in terms of exactly how those contracts that we had but hadn't started yet would be handled post closing once the new owner took over and was a you know officially and formally owner of the company and now contractually obligated to fulfill those contracts so again had we gotten to closing and the other side of this is that many of those contracts that we had also had deposits with them and so when you're talking about you know 30 40 50 jobs that you've got on the books they're not ready yet to start they're not they haven't begun all you have is a contract and a deposit and the deposit has to be kept track of in your accounting because it's technically not your money it it shows up on our balance or show it used to show up on our balance sheet as what we called unearned revenue that was a liability we had taken money for work we hadn't done yet so we had to keep track of it and there had to be a very very, very meticulous and precise and exact way of accounting for that on the day of closing because I had to transition those deposits that we had taken in scheduling that work, preparing to do that work. Well, now I had to have an accounting of all of those deposits that were associated with all of those signed contracts so that on the day of closing that could be transferred legally by the title company. This wasn't a handshake deal by us and here's the you know the spreadsheet and you think this is good and you write me a check for the business and then I'll write you a check for the <laughs> you know the deposits and, and it'll all work out. This had to be so clear that the title company, the escrow agent could understand it because you know at the latter stages of the transaction, the title company, the escrow agent creates a closing document that is then sent to the buyer, the buyer's lender, the buyer's representatives, they evaluate that. And so everybody has to understand exactly. If you can imagine entering into an agreement where if you've bought a house before the day of closing, when there's any kind of uncertainty, when there's any nagging unknowns or unresolved issues on the day of closing, it's stressful. You want those things resolved. You want this transaction to be complete. You want it to be over with. You want to own the house without any strings attached. I'm telling you, multiply that by a hundred. 
as it relates to selling a company. I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say the scale of complexity and stress and the stakes in buying a business are many, 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 many times what you experience in the purchasing of a house. Sitting down, you sign the document, you walk out, you got the keys, you own the house. There is so much more because every business is so unique, every transaction is so different from another one that you have to, in advance, have all of this laid out. Well, then you also had the work in process. So not only did we have to account for all the deposits and the contracts that we hadn't started, on the day of closing, you know, we had probably 10 jobs at various stages of production that we had templated. Some of them we had, you know, we're just about to install. And so we had in advance in the purchase agreement. So this isn't like the first 30 days. We're having to figure all this out and create a method to show and demonstrate to the buyer, hey, on these jobs that are in various stages of completion, um, I, you know, I'm incurring the labor and the cost to produce them to whatever level of completion they are at on the day of closing, I need to be compensated for that. So part of the transaction is is the seller handing over the deposits for jobs that haven't started yet. And the reverse of that is the buyer has to understand that there's a whole bunch of work because you can't, let's just say you've got a one-week turnaround time. You just can't stop templating a week before the, the, the supposed close date so that there's nothing left undone on the date of closing, and then you start back up. That would leave you with a two-week lag of production that would cause the buyer to suffer because there wouldn't be anything to start on. You'd be starting from scratch on day one. So you have to account for this work in process. And so we had to come up with this equation. You had to account for the deposits that were taken. You had to account for the material that had been purchased. And then you have to account for the percentage of completion on every job that happens to be in that stage that has not been installed yet on the day of closing. And the day of closing isn't exactly set in stone. There are a lot of things that can come into play that will dictate whether or not you close on the proposed date. And we had the close date delayed twice after this. I mean, where I had the entire accounting department, three people involved for days doing all of the background work to put all this information together to do all these calculations so that we could go to closing and then it got delayed twice (laughs) so you've got work in process you've got contracts not started that had to be accounted for in that purchase agreement before we could enter into that the next thing that was really interesting i learned during this process was that in a business sale like this the earnest money is not refundable whereas you know if you're buying a house You've got to put earnest money down, but you know you write that contingent upon you know a favorable inspection, let's say, and those are vague enough, and and you leave yourself enough latitude that if there's one fiber of the carpet that you don't like, it gives you legal cause to back out of the deal, and you get your earnest money back. It's handled by escrow, the title company, and there's no risk to your earnest money. Now, in a business sale like this, that earnest money was non-refundable under any circumstances. And the value in that, I thought, well, that's really strange. Well, what, what happens if something comes up and the buyer can't proceed? And it's like, well, that's how this works. You know, if, if you're going to get to the point where the seller is going to actually tell their team, tell their employees that the business is for sale, you got to know that the buyer is so serious and they are so convinced that they are willing to put non-refund, and I'm not talking about a small sum, I'm talking about a significant sum, a significant percentage of that business sale price is a non-refundable earnest money deposit, which we took, and I basically told the buyer, and we had developed 
uh, what I felt to be a very healthy and uh, just a real, uh, just a fantastic relationship during this whole transition. But up to this point of the earnest money, nobody in my company had any idea, with the exception of the one individual who I talked about selling the company to, that this was a foot I'd kept this completely secret. And so I basically had said, until I get that earnest money, I'm not telling anybody in the company that this is underway. And so the day after I received the earnest money, we had the signed purchase agreement, which now this is a binding contract and so much so for both parties. If I, as the seller, tried to back out for any reason outside of the, the, the confines of the agreement, I could be liable for damages to the buyer with all of the investment that they had made. And likewise, had the buyer backed out, you know, the, in, in violation of the agreement, you know, there could have been cause to, you know, to seek damage. Now, none of that happened. There wasn't even a risk of it. Never even thought it, it couldn't have gone any better in terms of the way that this transaction happened. But that's the stakes. That's what's included in this purchase agreement. It's like big boy business. It is no longer messing around. And the consequences for not fulfilling your end of the bargain, for not performing your side of the agreement, is uh, it's like a whole nother level. It's a whole nother realm. You are. Um, it's like the big leagues. Even though my company wasn't that big, it was the sense that this was the big time and, and the level of seriousness and the stakes and the things that depended upon you've got lives and livelihoods and you've got all these other interested parties, the brokers and the bank and the, the attorneys. And, you know, it was amazing. And so one of the component that, that just added to the stress, we discovered after we had the letter of intent um, somebody mentioned it might be a good idea to check the loan in the building. We own the, the building that we ran our company in, our fab shop. And so I thought, well, I better talk to the lender. It had been four or five years since we bought the building. And um, turns out, lo and behold, the SBA loan that I got to buy the building initially did not allow me to have a tenant. And so all of a sudden, now this entire purchase agreement hinges upon whether or not I can go out and get a traditional commercial loan which I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to get or not. I'd never done that before. SBA, pretty generous. You know, they, they, they make it as easy as possible for people like me to buy a piece of commercial real estate. I wasn't sure if uh, you took them out of the equation, I'd still be able to qualify. And so here we go. Now we've got this entire business sale hinging because fellow fabricator, you know, the prospect of just packing up a shop and moving it to another location is, uh, it's just not practical. In fact, the, 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 the buyer's lender was not very happy about the prospect of the business not continuing in the space that it was in. It introduces all kinds of risk, all kinds of unknowns in terms of the expense of moving, all kinds of delays to the continuation of the business, which is what generates the income that allows the loan to be paid back. So lenders are a little skittish when you're talking about, hey, we're going to buy this business and then move it, you know, on day two. And so really the business sale depended upon whether or not we could get a commercial loan, a standard commercial loan on the building that would allow us the latitude to actually have a tenant in the building. And so we began that process of the refinance. And, and interestingly enough, we had the first close date scheduled. I can't remember the date. I think it was in July. We did not sign the loan documents on the building until the morning of the day that we had this, the closing scheduled, talk about stress, talk about losing sleep. It was like if there's one, if anything doesn't come through, then the closing can't happen because I cannot lease a building 
with the existing loan that we had. And so if I did, it would put me out of the covenants and I could end up, you know, it would, could set in motion all kinds of other chaos for the buyer of the business as well as for my wife and I who owned the building. And so that was just another um, kind of hurry up and wait. You've got this this entire transaction hinging upon whether or not this new lender was going to actually come through and it was chaos. I mean, it was chaos right to the very, very end. We kept telling the broker, the commercial broker, look, we got to make sure that we have all of our ducks. Is there anything else you need from us? Is there anything else you're going to need to close this loan? Oh, no, no, no. We got everything. And it was like every three or four days out of the blue. Oh, um, have you sent this in to us yet? And we're like, sent what? And, I mean, that happened time and time again. And I was on pins and needles thinking at any moment, this loan's not going to come through and the whole sale, the whole transaction's going to come crashing down. It didn't. In the end, it all worked out. And it was it was amazing. And I think what I've learned, this is interesting, on both sides of the transaction. So the closing, you know, you, you schedule this date and then the seller, we had to do all this work and preparing the work and process and the contracts not started and come up with this extensive, massive spreadsheet. All the, 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 the contracts had to be printed off. All the deposits had to be accounted for. The work and process had to be understood. All this work and all on the day of closing. Well, the buyer's lender, for whatever reason, there was an issue and they weren't ready. They weren't able to close. And so we had to rewrite the purchase agreement to extend it like 30 more days. And that happened twice. So the thing I want to mention here is the role that debt plays in a business sale on the purchase side and on the seller side, because we as a business, we just bought a five axis saw earlier in that year, like <laughs> two weeks before we got the offer on the company, we installed a brand new Sasso five axis item or what the, what the model was. Um, and so we had a loan on that piece of equipment. We had a couple of trucks. We still had loans on. I think we had a loan on, um, a couple of big fans that we'd installed in the building to move the, 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 you know, the humid air around. And so none of them were very big. I mean, these, the, the amounts were kind of insignificant, but it's still significant because legally at closing, it doesn't matter if you've got a loan on a no lift install cart for you know uh, you know under ten thousand dollars, or you've got a hundred and fifty thousand dollar you know five axis saw. Irregardless, legally, the lender has first right to that asset, and so legally you cannot sell the rights to that asset to another party, and then turn around. Even if it happens five seconds later, it is not legal. To sell a piece of equipment like that, if you read the contract, you will discover that um, it's to protect the lender. It's to protect their interest in the asset that collateralizes their loan. In the event that you don't pay, they still have. So you can't sell something to somebody that isn't yours. So whether it was the fans, whether it was the trucks, whether it was the saw, because we hadn't paid those loans off, the lender still had the right to those assets. We could not legally sell them to the new owner. So that all has to be handled at closing by a title company and an escrow agent. And so from my perspective, we also, as a seller, we had to go get the closing statements. And in the COVID age, when everybody's working from home and everything takes 10 times as long to get, um, there was an enormous amount of work that went into a, a, a assembling those closing statements. And you're at the mercy of those companies that have lent you money. And on the flip side, the buyer is at the mercy of his lender. 
if they're not happy, if they're not on the ball, then things don't happen. And so this old proverb, uh, you know, the borrower is the slave to the lender. I found that to be so true. I mean, it's true anyway, if you think about it. The borrower is the slave to the lender. In this case, it is, it is, is extraordinarily true. Everybody depends upon that. You are at the mercy of those lenders. And it adds a layer of complication. I was just thinking, if we had not had debt on our side as the seller, and if the buyer had cash, it would have shortened that transaction. It probably would have it probably would have been four months faster we would have been able to have completed that transaction if it wasn't for the liabilities on both sides. And so we get to closing. We actually have the second or the third closing date scheduled. Here's where I want to just, I want to finish with this because the last person we saw, uh, other than the new owner of the company, was the escrow agent. And we were really fortunate. Our attorney had a relationship with this escrow agent. And technically, every, you know, there's, there's just title companies everywhere right now because residential real estate's going nuts and there's so many houses being bought and sold. So you got title companies and escrow agents coming out. You know, they're just, they're just everywhere. What we discovered is very, very, very few of those escrow agents and those title companies anymore handle business sales. They all, in a sense, can legally. That's their function. But very few of them actually do. And so on one hand, that narrows the number of title companies that you can work with. And you have to go find one, you know, and, and, and that's that's part of the job of selling the company. We were very fortunate. And I would say this to anybody. Keep this in mind. The value of a seasoned escrow agent the escrow agent that we ended up with the relationship with who managed the closing, handled the closing, was a gem. Um, her name was Jan Mann. And she, interestingly enough, had owned multiple companies of her own over the years. She had owned commercial real estate of her own over the years. She was an extremely seasoned and experienced individual. And then she'd moved into, and she had her own title company at one point, and now she was just an escrow agent. But she had this wealth of knowledge. And I cannot tell you, I couldn't even recount the number of times she recognized things that the buyer missed, the buyer's lender missed, our attorney missed our lender missed. And she would say, hey, you know what? You need to be looking at this. And, and it'd be this red flag would pop up and we'd go back to our advisors and go, hey, what about this? And they would, oh, wow, good, good thing she caught that. That happened time and time again. So I cannot stress to you the value and the benefit of having a very experienced, very seasoned, very qualified escrow agent at closing at the title company. It's absolutely priceless. That didn't cost us a dime. And, and, and she basically shepherded her voice of reason and calm when there was so much stress and there had been delays and there had been frustration and there had been, um, you know, just things that hadn't gone according to plan. She maintained a level head. She, cooler heads prevailed in that, in that respect. And, um, and I credit her with ultimately seeing that transaction through and it ended well. We, we, we all showed up. It was supposed to be like at nine o'clock in the morning while there were still some things being worked out with the, the buyer's lender. And I thought, oh, maybe it's not going to happen today. And she's like, nope, it's going to happen. Come back at 11 o'clock. We're going to get this done. So my wife and I went out to breakfast. We came back at 11 a.m. The buyer and his wife sat down. My wife and I sat down with the escrow agent. And um, and she had also, also handled, she had actually also handled the loan on our building, the new loan that we got so that we could actually have a tenant in there. And so we had gotten to know her really well. It was just really neat the way this all worked out. And so we go in there. There's this massive stack of papers, and I sign them all first, and then um, we get up and leave, and 
it was over. He signed the rest of the papers or a few of the documents that he had to sign. I walked out of that office and um, I no longer owned a stone shop. Almost, it was February 22nd that we got the letter of intent. It was August 19th, the day that we closed. So it was almost six months to the day, which is about twice as fast as a typical business sale uh, in terms of the, uh, an average transaction is one year to sell a company. Ours happened in six months. And so it was unique in that respect. Even though it seemed like an eternity, um, it was still quite a bit shorter than your average business sale. And so, ladies and gentlemen, fellow fabricators, that uh, in a nutshell is uh, the story of, of how the sale unfolded and, and how that transaction looked and what were some of the things that we experienced along the way. And I kept saying, you know, this is the first time. This, this, this will not be the last business that I sell, hopefully. Um, and even though this one didn't go perfectly, I learned so much from the experience because it's gonna, it'll play a role in the next time. Um, in terms of the transaction itself, in terms of expectations and having been through it once before, all the unknowns are gone. And now it's, it's, uh, there's a, there's just a more seasoned perspective. But beyond that, what I learned about my own business in terms of the state of the company, and, and what brokers, what banks, and what buyers value, it was incredibly enlightening to understand now in terms of how I run the business going forward in the event that I ever sell another company again. I will be much better prepared in terms of how the company looks, how the company operates, and what to focus on in the business um, to increase the value in terms of the the, the, the market value of the the business itself, as well as what a buyer is looking for. What does a buyer value? And so um, I share that with you, ladies and gentlemen. I hope to, to, to utilize that knowledge and experience down the road myself, and I hope that you will be able to use it in the event that at some point in your business career, you begin to consider selling your own stone shop. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I so appreciate the Fab Lab podcast audience. I'm so honored and so privileged to be behind the microphone sharing this experience with you. My goal, my singular purpose in this, my motivation was simply to share my experience so that it could benefit you as you build, as you run your stone shop, as you work on the business side of your stone shop. And so I want to let you know, these were the mechanics today. In the next episode, I'm actually going to talk about the emotional reality of selling the company. When you start telling employees that have been with you 15, 20 years that you sold the shop, I'm telling you, it's uh, it ain't easy. When you are talking about what you're going to do next, when you talk about leaving that sense of security, that familiarity, it is a um, emotional roller coaster to say the least. And so in the next episode, I'm going to talk about that in terms of preparing mentally for the sale of a company. And then at that point, I'll be done talking about the sale of my business, but it is so significant. I don't want to beat around the bush. I don't want to hide from the fact that I'm doing a podcast on the business side of fabricating um, and I no longer own a stone shop, but I believe, I absolutely believe that um, it frees me up to do a better job of delivering good content here on the Fab Lab podcast that will benefit you, fellow fabricators, stone shop owners, so that you can run a more successful company right now and in the years to come. And so make sure you check back We've also started recording these podcasts, so you can go to YouTube, just, just do a search for the Fab Lab Podcast. These videos will pop up. You can watch those there. You can visit me, AaronCrowley.com, if you want to reach out, if you've got some questions. If you'd like to talk about the sale of your company, by all means, head to my website, reach out. Would love to connect with you. So make sure you tune in next week for the next episode on the Fab Lab Podcast. Until then, happy fabricating. <laughs>